Well, good morning, and welcome to Help Community Church. Welcome to those of you joining us online. I'm Pastor Trevor, I'm glad you could be with us uh, this morning to sing songs of praise and to hear our Father uh, speak to us through His Word. Um, and before we do, uh, let's go to Him in prayer, seeking wisdom and discernment this morning. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for allowing us to gather together as, as one body. Thank you for allowing us to come before you, uh, forgiven on the basis of the blood of your Son that was shed for our forgiveness. Uh, we thank you uh, that we can enter into your presence, enter into your grace, uh, boldly, confidently, and that we can seek wisdom from you without reproach. So, Father, we ask that you would give your wisdom to us generously this morning, that you would bless us with your word, that we would hear your word speak to us as we go to it, that your wisdom um, would abound all the more, and that we would be edified, equipped, and sanctified uh, by your truth this morning so that we could glorify you in all that we do. We ask this uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So how do you react when life, your life, encounters evil and suffering? And of course, as we all know, there is no shortage of the evil. There is no shortage of suffering in our lives or in this world because we live in a fallen and cursed world. How often in the midst of such trials do you call to mind that God is sovereign over all things to include the evil and the suffering that you're experiencing? Does this impact, does this form how you respond to your affliction, how you react to it? Often, when a person experiences affliction, they will cry out, and they will cry out in various forms. They will do so verbally. Uh, they might tweet about it. They might blog about it. They might do a video blog where all they're doing is screaming at a camera. Some will faithfully pray about the affliction in their lives. And that is our consideration before us this morning. When affliction of any type finds us, how do we respond? How should we? respond. 2 Kings chapter 6 to 7, which is our text this morning, so if you haven't already turned there, uh, please turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, keep it open, that way you can reference it as you need it as we go through it. Uh, but our passage this morning gives us four situations in which four people each cry out about their affliction. The first two in chapter 6 demonstrate for us positive examples for how we ought to cry out. The last two, one which is at the end of chapter 6 and the other at the very beginning of chapter 7, seven demonstrate for us negative examples that we ought to avoid when we cry out in need uh, or frustration. So as we consider these moments and consider what we ought to do, I'm going to share with you a few key passages. And these key passages could be considered cornerstone passages of our faith. Now, that means that they are worthy of memorization. They are worthy of meditation to chew on, on the regular, and to ponder every single word in them. So I would commend these passages to you, and I'll highlight them as we uh, get to them. But especially if you struggle with going to uh, God in prayer, or if you struggle with anxieties, or if you struggle to understand why God does what he does, or why he allows what he allows, these passages uh, would be a blessing to you. So let's begin by looking at the first two examples, and then consider how the person in each instance responded. Uh, the first instance we find in verses 1 and 7. This is the lost axe head. Uh, the sons of the prophets had come to Elisha, and they tell Elisha, hey, we need more space, we need to make more room. They're obviously uh, living together, and so they head down to uh, the river Jordan to cut some wood. And as they're cutting wood, one of the sons of the prophets, as he's hacking away with an axe, the axe just flies off, and it just flies off and plops into uh, the river Jordan, and he says, alas, my master, it was borrowed. And so Elisha says, well, where did it go? And the man points it to him, Elisha throws a stick in, and it causes the axe head uh, to float somehow. Then our next instance, verses 8 through 23, we have the story of two armies and a man. We have the Syrian army and the army of angels. Elisha, he's been supernaturally spying for the king of Israel. He's been meddling in the political affairs of the, of the day. 
Syria, as you may remember from chapter 5, they've been doing raids into Israel. That's how the, the girl in chapter 5 was kidnapped and put into Naaman's care. They've been doing raids, and on these raids, they've been hoping to capture or, or kill uh, the king of Israel. But Elisha, by the power of the Spirit, by wisdom given to him by Yahweh, has been letting the king of Israel know, hey, stay away from here, stay away from there. Syria is going to be there. The Syrian king, he starts getting frustrated. He thinks that there's a spy within his cohort, within his house, within his court. But he learns, nope, it's Elisha, by the power of God, who has been telling the king of Israel their ongoings. So the Syrian king decides to take out Elisha, and he tracks him down at Dothan. So while at Dothan, Elisha's servant gets up early one morning, comes out, and he sees this army surrounding them. And it's the Syrian army. He doesn't see the angels. He sees the Syrian army. It's not until he says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha's like, why are you worried? We have an army of angels around us, and the man can't see it. So Elisha says, asks God to open the eyes of his servant in verse 17. And it's interesting because Elisha mentions the angels, but then that's it. He doesn't ask for the angels to strike down the Syrian army. Actually, in mercy, Elisha then asks God to strike the Syrians with blindness. Now, this blindness that Elisha uh, has asked God to strike the Syrians with, more than likely, um, is not a literal physical of blindness. Right? Uh, consider in verse 19, Elisha tells them, follow me. So this is a, an army, a group of, of soldiers that have to travel 10 miles to uh, Samaria. So if every single one of them uh, were to be actually blinded and could not physically see anything, um, it would be quite the feat for them, one, to follow him um, and to do so for, for 10 miles uh, from Dothan uh, south to Samaria. Also, when we look, talk about the language that's being used here, um, when they do get us to Samaria and they're handed into the hands of the king of Israel, uh, Elisha asks God to open their eyes. The same language that he uses to open the eyes of his servant to the angels. And clearly his servant wasn't blind, right? His servant uh, could see the Syrian army, but he was blind to the angels. So this blindness for the Syrians more than likely is like a cognitive blindness, almost like a, um, a, a mental, a loss of mental awareness, like maybe a, an acute case of Alzheimer's. Like they can see things, but they're completely unaware as to where they are, why they're there, and where they're going. Thus, they need Elisha to uh, lead them. So Elisha leads them to Samaria. Then he asks God to open their eyes once they're in the midst of uh, Samaria. And the king of Israel is there. And remember, the king of Israel is Jerome. And Jerome wants to kill them. And Elisha rebukes that thought and says, no, feed them and release them. And so they do. Um, and in doing so, this essentially ends the raids that Syria makes into Israel, at least until they go back to war, like full-on war, which we will read about um, in a moment. But before we do, let's consider how the two men in these two instances, um, in these two instances of distress and affliction, how they responded to the situations. And the first situation with the axe head that was lost in the river, note the response of the man in verse 5. He loses the accent. He goes, alas, my master, it was borrowed. This man of faith cared deeply for what was lent to him. Uh, he cared about his neighbor's procession. His concern uh, that we see here is a positive example of what faithful stewardship is. He is a righteous man, and he desires not to be compared with the wicked, as the wicked is compared in Psalm 37, verse 21, where it reads, the wicked borrows, but does not pay back but the righteous is generous and gives. This son of the prophets, he's living off of meager portions, meager rations. He probably doesn't have the money to pay back for this nice iron axe that has flown off the handle. So he is in a moment of, of, of need, of, of provision. And note how he deals with the pain of the situation. He first expresses his dismay and concern to his master Elisha, the man of God. He doesn't play the victim, right? He doesn't blame the shoddy quality of the axe. He doesn't go, boy, that axe head, it, it, was, just a, it was just a bad axe. It was not la lashed on there properly. It was not fitted right. It was, just, it was a cheap axe anyway. He doesn't play the victim, nor does he go, my neighbor who lent me the axe, he must be a sinner. There must be some kind of sin in his life, 
and God must be disciplining him or rebuking him for this sin. He's guilty of something. This isn't my fault. This is God's will. I mean, after all, it just happened to fly off and just happened to go in the river Jordan. Oh, well, right? He doesn't shrug his shoulders. No, he's concerned. He laments this situation, even though it's really no fault of his own. So he cries out about it to his master. And his master, Elisha, meets him in his, in his need, and by the will and power of God, is able to provide for this man in his need and allows the axe to come back to him. The second situation in verses 8 through 23, uh, again, this involves the servant and the two armies. Here, though, the issue isn't about stewardship. It isn't about physical provision for a material item, but rather it is uh, a situation that involves the fear of one's life. Right? He comes out and he's fearful for his life. And again, God's sovereign power, sovereign authority is not limited to circumstance. It extends over all circumstances. And note how he responds to his situation in verse 15. Alas, my master, what shall we do? This is the same exclamation as the man in verse 5 who lost the axe head. Two very different situations, yet very similar responses. Elisha responds to the, to the man's need by praying for him, asking God to show him the angels that he couldn't see. Thus, the man was blessed and encouraged by seeing the actual means by which God was providing protection for Elisha and his servant. And Elisha goes a step further by uh, protecting the Syrian army from the angelic army by blinding them and escorting them to the king of Israel. Consider how the man could have responded in this situation, though. He could have become angry with Elisha. He could have become angry like the king of Israel often did with Elisha. You troubler of Israel. You troublemaker. Why did you have to meddle in the affairs of politics? Why did you have to get between Syria and Israel? Why couldn't you just keep out of your nose out of the business of the government? You could have just kept your mouth shut, could have laid low, and Syria would have nothing to do with you. But no, you had to keep telling the king of Israel, who's an idolater anyway, who's evil, wicked, and unrighteous, Look at all the injustices he has been doing. You just had to keep sparing him's life by getting involved and telling him what Syria is doing. And so now they want you dead, and I'm going to die because of it. That's not what he does. He could have, but he doesn't. He also could have fled. He could have gotten out of the tent and gone, not here for me, you're here for him. He's still sleeping, and he maybe could have ran off. Maybe they would have spared him. Who knows? But he doesn't. He turns to his master. And just like the other man earlier cries out, Alas, my master, what shall we do? What's next? How do we get out of this? The man's seeking wisdom. He's seeking guidance. He is seeking deliverance from his situation. And thus he is entreating the one whom he serves. Likewise, when we are in need, no matter how small it may be or how big it may be, we must not be afraid to cry out as these two men cried out. Whether it's for a material item that we can't afford or not, or whether it's for our own lives, we must be quick to entreat the one whom we serve. And all of us, we who call on to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we serve God first. And we either do it faithfully or we do it in rebellion. So in our time of need, when affliction does fall upon us, let us not be hesitant to fall upon our knees and cry out, Alas, my God, I lack, I suffer, I'm cold, I'm in need, I'm poor, whatever it may be. Or more simply, we just cry out, Father, help. Let us share in David's affections on the matters he states in Psalm 27, 7, where he says, Hear Yahweh when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. And let us be faithful with our anxieties and their causes. And when we pray for our anxieties, let us not just pray for the anxiety, but let us pray for the cause, the, the problem itself that is causing the anxiety as well. So let us be faithful and present them to God, as Paul exhorts us to in Philippians 4, 6 through 7. And, and this is one of those passages to memorize, to meditate, to chew on. I mean, this is a passage that you want to, especially if you struggle with anxiety, if you struggle with, with prayer, if you struggle with experiencing the peace of Christ in your life, that you meditate and ponder every phrase, every part of this passage 
over and over again as you go through the day. Just think about what does it mean not to be anxious? What is it? Well, let me read it first. Not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So as you ponder this, ponder what it means not to be anxious about anything. Consider what is causing anxiety in your life. And then consider what you need to do. And everything by prayer and supplication, that's petitions, that's making your requests with thanksgiving. Are you going to God with bitterness? Are you angry? Are you frustrated about the anxiety? Or are you grateful that you can go to him with these concerns? Are you grateful that he is merciful towards you? Consider how you could be giving these prayers with thanksgiving. Consider what might be hindering your ability to do so. And think about the result of this, the peace of God. Ponder what the peace of God is. Ponder why you desire it, what it must like, must be like to have the peace of God, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding and how it will guard your heart and mind. Like, be at awe and wonder as you ponder the truth of Scripture. It will help you memorize it, and it will help you put it into practice. When we pray this way, we are seeking the kingdom first, right? Matthew 6, when Jesus talks about in Matthew 6, you know, don't worry, don't worry about anxieties, don't worry about what tomorrow will bring, but seek the kingdom first, and all these will be added to you. When we pray this way, we are doing just that. We are seeking the kingdom first. And this isn't a mere letting go and letting God. No, this is a getting God. This is a going to God. It is an active response, not a passive response. Like little children who are in need or in danger, they just don't stay in their, in their need or in their danger, especially when they know where their father is. They run to their father in the midst of danger, in the midst of need. Likewise, we know where our father is, and when we are in need or when we are in danger, when we are experiencing affliction, we run, we go to, we just don't hide in the corner and think, I hope he sees this. I hope he knows. Of course he knows. But go to him. Show, demonstrate your faith in him by running to him. And we do this because, again, God is sovereign. This is the main theme of First and Second Kings. God is sovereign over all things. All things, right? And by all things, it literally means all things happen under his authority. The good and the bad. The righteous and the unrighteous. This is why we pray. This is not why we don't pray. If he wasn't sovereign, what trust do we have in prayer? But in his full sovereignty, knowing that he's in full control of the situation, we can go to him with full confidence and assurance that he will answer our prayers as we need him to. Now let me speak about uh, the angels briefly um, that we see in our text before moving on. We don't get many references in scripture of angels like this. Um, and, and so I, I do want to speak to angels just for a brief moment. The scripture doesn't reveal a whole lot to us about angels, but it does reveal enough to us uh, that we know that they are real and they come in various forms. In this case, they are invisible. They're, they're, they look like the angels that escorted Elijah up to heaven. Um, and as servants, you and I, we who are saints uh, of, of, the, of Jesus Christ, part of the body, uh, angels who are servants of the Most High, they serve the saints of God. That's what Hebrews 1, uh, 14 tells us. Angels, are they not ministering spirits to those who shall inherit uh, salvation? Now, we cannot see them um, as they are working in our midst. Uh, sometimes they do come to us as strangers, and we might entertain an angel, but we don't know it. But even now, there are probably angels in this room, angels outside doing whatever God needs them to do and whatever that is, and, and Scripture doesn't speak to that for us. We just don't know. We don't need to know. And though they are real and they are powerful, we must be careful not to worship them. Right? Angel worship is forbidden in Scripture. Angels forbid it. God's Word for, forbids it. Nor must we pray to angels. Right? Angels are not our source of help. God may use them as a means of help, but they do not have the authority to help us. God is the one that we must go to. So we must not pray to them. And we, we don't need to. We need to remember that we, especially in the New Covenant, we have one in us, the Holy Spirit, 
who is greater than they are. So while they are uh, beautiful, wonderful, majestic creatures that we really don't know a whole lot about, and they are very powerful, the spirit that's within you is much more powerful, and he is all that we need. Now, before I go any further into the topic of angels, let's continue on. And let us look at the two negative examples of what we should not do in the midst of affliction and how we should, bad examples that that we should not mimic as we wait for God to act. These two instances come to us within the context of the Aramean or or the Syrian siege. Remember, Aramean is just another word, another name for the Syrian uh, nation. Um, So these two instances come in the context of the siege uh, that the Syrian army has beset upon Samaria Um, in verse 24 through chapter uh, 7. Syria has stopped the raids, but after an amount of time, the Syrian king wants to go to war with Israel again. So he goes to Samaria, puts a siege against it, and a massive famine falls upon the land. So much so that in verse 25, we read that a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver, and dove's dung, or uh, seed pods, depending on how your translation, your version translates it, uh, is sold for five shekels. So we have a high cost, or typically low cost items, but this is not the worst of it. As Jerome, the king of Israel, is walking the wall of this city, a woman brings to him a horrifying situation. This woman says, I, I, well, I was a mother, I had a child, I made a pact with another mother. We're so hungry, we, we promised that we would boil my son first and eat him. And then tomorrow, we'll boil her son and eat him. And so we boiled my son, we ate him, and then she ran. And so I don't know where she is, but we're supposed to boil her son and eat him. And the king doesn't know what to do with this horrific injustice. He doesn't know what to do about this cannibalism. And one can hardly blame him because, I mean, that's, that is a dire situation. This account, though, of cannibalism in the midst of a siege, it's really not a mystery as to why it's happening. This is a clear and direct result of Israel's sin in breaking the covenants and not responding to God's earlier acts of discipline against them, calling them back from idolatry into faithful worship. Deuteronomy 28, verses 52 and 53, this is God speaking through Moses to his people, and this is near the the, uh, bottom of the list of curses that will befall the nation if they break the covenant. It reads, They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which which Yahweh your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom Yahweh your God has given you, in the siege and the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. So there in verse 53 where it says, you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters. That's exactly what has happened here. And in this situation, this particular siege, this is only a snippet of the sieges to come. This is like God saying, that curse I told you that would come to you, it's going to happen. Here's a taste of it. And then later, when Assyria comes to Israel, it's going to happen even in a greater extent. It's going to happen to the whole nation. And then it's going to happen to Judah later, uh, twice with uh, Babylon, when Babylon comes to Israel. Uh, bring them into exile. So this reality is a reality that the king, if he was a faithful king, a non-idolatrous, unfaithful king, if King Jerome was faithful, he would have been aware of this. If he had followed the instructions of Deuteronomy 17 and committed the law of God to his heart and was familiar with it, he would be like, this is clearly God disciplining us. This is clearly a consequence of our, our idolatry, and we need to repent. And he would have been in ashes and sackcloth seeking God's mercy. But he doesn't. That's not how he acts. In fact, he does anything uh, but being appropriate in this situation. In verses 30, 30 and 31, he cries out, but he doesn't cry out like the two men before that we've already talked about. Right? He doesn't cry out to Yahweh. This crying out is one of anger and bitterness towards Elisha, towards God's prophet. As such, this malice is ultimately directed towards Yahweh himself. The king was more than willing earlier on when Elisha brought the Syrian army to his doorstep. The king then was like, oh, this is good. And then when Elisha said, no, don't kill them, the king then was more than willing to submit to Elisha's, to God's word. 
But now that the circumstances have changed, his response has changed as well, and his true colors have been exposed. And this is often the case with people. One's faith is not truly known until their comforts and pleasures have been stripped from them. That's why when somebody comes to Christ, and it happens to be around the same time that they've gotten a new job, or they've entered into a new relationship, or this or that, they're just talking about how good God is, but they never were before, you might want to be patient with them and wait until those things are taken away or wait until hardship and affliction comes upon them because it's often in those times that you know if they actually have faith in God or if they have faith in their prosperity. Because that's when, when affliction falls on us, that the world and God will see whether or not God himself is enough or if we're simply enjoying the blessings that he has given us. Elisha, by God's power, he is made aware of the king's efforts to kill him. And he's sitting in his house, and notice who's with him in his house, the elders of the city. This detail highlights that Elisha, he's a man of good reputation, a man of respect. The elders respect him. The king should respect him, but the king is after him. The king wants him dead. In verse 1 of chapter 7, Elisha gives word from Yahweh, hearing uh, what the messenger is saying, recognizing the king's frustrated. He's growing impatient. He no longer wants to wait for Yahweh. And Elisha's saying, just one more day. Look, tomorrow, verse 1, we'll go ahead and read it. Hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, tomorrow, about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. That, that's a dramatic difference from paying 80 shekels for a donkey's head. When you get flour for a for two um, for excuse me for one shekel one one sea of flour for a shekel huge difference I mean just imagine inflation in America tomorrow just just dropping right just going back to I don't know levels that whatever level you think is good right it was good like milk all of a sudden becomes a quarter again right it, it, everything comes cheap again right it's a miraculous thing but notice the response of the king's captain the next verse. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If Yahweh himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But Elisha said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And it's interesting that the man here who is talking with sarcastic doubt is essentially the king's right-hand man. Right? Remember, in chapter 5, it's two chapters before, we had a, a man who was the right-hand man of the king of Syria, Naaman. And he was faithful. He believed. He didn't doubt. Here is a man who is of the covenant's community, who should not be doubting, who should have faith in what Yahweh has done already for Israel. But he is unfaithful. He um, expresses publicly with sarcasm, doubt. Can Yahweh actually do this? Come on. Essentially saying, what foolish talk, Elisha. Then, in verses 3 through 20, we read of how it plays out. And we see how uh, the captain's fate is played out as well. We read of these four lepers. They're outside the city, right? Because they can't be in the city because they're lepers. They're unclean. They have to stay outside. And so they're thinking, we're hungry. It's worse in the city. We can't go in there anyway. If we stay here, we're going to die. So maybe we should go to the people who have food. Maybe they'll have mercy on us. Maybe they'll give us food, or maybe they'll kill us. Either way, what do we have to lose? So the next morning, they get up, they go to the camp, and they find it empty. Why? Because the Syrian army had fled, because God had caused the sound of horses and chariots to come upon them, and maybe those horses and chariots were the, was the angelic army that we read about earlier that caused the Syrian army to flee. Either way, they, the four lepers, they, they, they find all, all the spoils. It's theirs. They start eating. They start drinking. They're hiding the gold. They're hiding the silver. I think guilt comes upon them because they realize the situation in the city is bad and they, it would be just wrong to keep all this for themselves. So they go back, they tell the king, the king's hesitant, the king sends out a small company, the small company realizes, yeah, this isn't a trap. This is actually true. They, they fled and all their stuff's here. News makes it into the city and the people, because they're hungry, because they're eating their own kids, they don't want to eat their own kids anymore, they run out the gates, right? And if you've seen people who are hungry and you give them food, they will, go, they will act almost like animals, trying to get that food, especially if they're on the brink of death. And whatever energy they have left, they will charge for that food. And so the king's captain, who's overseeing the gates, and during a siege, that's an important duty. 
So it makes sense that he's watching the gate, but he's in the way. And he sees of it, he hears of the news, but in verses 17 through 20, as we are told, he's trampled at the gate. He sees of it, but he shall not eat of it. And the prophecy that Elisha declares upon the captain is fulfilled. As well as the prophecy of the flour being sold for as cheap as it was, was, verse 16 highlights that for us. The first two men of our text this morning responded to the situations with faithful expectation and hope, without knowing what the answer may be. But they went in faith. They went in trust. The king and his captain here, however, they responded with opposite mindsets. The king was not wrong to lament his situation, right? We, we must be clear on this. To lament your situation, our lamentations, our crying out because of the affliction that is upon us, that's healthy. We ought to do it. There's a whole book in the Bible with a prophet, Jeremiah, lamenting what God is doing, lamenting what the people are doing. So you can do it. But what is wrong is how the king, where the king went with his lamentation. He's wrong to take matters into his own hand, to say, I'm done waiting for Yahweh. I am done waiting for God. The captain, he doubted and he even mocked Yahweh's sovereign ability, and he heard God's answer. It wasn't like he was waiting for God to answer like the king was. He heard the answer of God, and he just didn't believe it. He just did not have the faith. We must understand that even in the most horrific situations, along with the most hopeless, even the situations where people eat their own kids, like boil the kid, like they see the child, it's not just like they, they don't know where the meat came from, they, they're involved in the whole process, right? Like some of you like to eat your chicken, but if we give you a chicken that's alive to slaughter it so you can eat it, you might be hesitant to eat the chicken. So take, this child wasn't like a child that just came, oh, where did this meat come from? No, it was, they were heavily, personally, intimately involved. That's how horrific and how horrible this situation is. I'm saying that because I don't want you to miss the depth of suffering that is going on here under the hand of God. Because I think often we, we gloss over these things. We try to dilute it. We try to soften it. But this is the reality of the situation. So regardless of how horrific it is, God is still in control. And he's in control in perfect accordance to his sovereign and gracious will. Whether we understand it or not. Whether we can comprehend it or not. Therefore, we lean into him in all matters, in all situations, especially in the midst of afflictions. Whether we are in the rain or in the sun, in the cold or in the warmth, in pain or in comfort, in death or in life, we lean into him. We wait for him patiently trusting his will even if waiting on him means we go to death and we see him when we open our eyes from our moment of death we do so whether we understand his ways or not we do so whether we like his answer or not because his answer might be sorry the child will die sorry you will get the cancer and you will not be cured sorry you will lose your job you will be poor. And we might wonder why. And he might not tell us, except for, it's for your good. You don't understand how, but it's for your good. It's for my glory. All this is temporary, though. This is vain, and what awaits you is eternity. Whatever suffering you undergo here does not compare to the eternal glory that awaits. We may live in a godless, I shouldn't say we may live, we do live in a godless and idolatrous society, just like Elisha and the sons of the prophets did in Israel during the ninth century BC. But that does not mean that we can not go to God or that he can't be found. In a land that lacked faithful priests, especially in the old covenant, Elisha was the intercessor. He was the mediator between man and God. He was the one who interceded for his people. Nowadays, our mediator, our intercessor is Christ Jesus. First Timothy 2.5, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And this should encourage us because Jesus is not a harsh man. He's, not, he, he's, a, he's a gentle man. He is gentle and lowly. 
So I'm going to give you another passage here to memorize, to to meditate on. If if you struggle imagining God as as gracious, as gentle and and lowly, that you can approach him and he's not going to snap your neck off. He's not going to bite your head off. He's not going to yell at you. You don't have to approach him as if you're walking on eggshells. Matthew 11, 28 and 30 is a passage worthy of this meditation and memorization. Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, I might give you rest, or I will try to give you rest. I will give you rest. And he says, all who, are, who, all who labor and are heavy laden. He doesn't put anything else before it. You just need to come to me. He doesn't say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, except for those who, well, you made your bed, you got to sleep in it. It's your own fault. No, everyone, come to me. And if you do, you will have rest. He goes on and says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Like we, this is probably the hard part of the passage. We like the rest part, but when Jesus says, learn from me, oh, well, that means we got to keep his commandments. We got to live the way that he wants us to live, and we struggle with that. But we can learn from him, even in the midst of our mistakes, in the midst of our sins. Why? As he goes on, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. For your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we go to him. We don't need a man like Elisha. We have the perfect great high priest, Jesus Christ. And when we approach God seeking wisdom for our situation, for our affliction, for our lives, we must do so confidently. Don't let your sins hold you back. Don't let the devil think, you can't go to him again. Not for the same problem. Not for the same affliction. You remember how you reacted the last time God put you through a trial? You acted just like the king. You acted just like his captain. You doubted him. You were sarcastic with him. You weren't faithful. You think he's going to give you wisdom again? Yes, he will. James, note the first chapter of James, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him without reproach. God's not going to be like, all right, here's the wisdom, but remember what you did last time? I'm going to hold you to that. Or I'm not going to give you all the wisdom because you don't take very good care of it. No, he gives it generously. But we must do so confidently. Note the next few verses. In verses 6 through 8, James goes on and says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And let me clarify, this does not mean that you can ask whatever you want and with enough faith get it, right? Jesus elsewhere in Matthew says, ask whatever you want and it's yours. But that's in the context of ask whatever you want in faith. Ask whatever you want in accordance to the will of God. God's word is clear on that. It clarifies that multiple places throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament, that the only prayers that are answered are the ones that glorify God and that are asked in accordance to his will. James here, he uses a picture of a double-minded man not to say that like a moment of doubt ruins the prayer. Right? That's, that's not it. I mean, think of the satirian that's asked, Jesus, help my unbelief. I mean, that is a prayer that's rooted in, in doubt. It's not about a moment of doubt, but it is a life that is consistently doubting that is consistently unfaithful, like a wave. And we're not talking about the waves that crash on the beach, but the waves in the middle of the ocean that's constantly changing shape. It's always out there, but it's always changing shape. It never maintains its form. Douglas Moo, in his commentary, uh, says it well. He, he writes, So the doubter, not processing an, ankle for, an anchor for the soul, that's Christ, does not pray to God with a consistency and sincerity of purpose. He is prey to the shifting winds of motive and desire. He wants wisdom from God one day and the wisdom of the world the next. The double-minded man, therefore, does not endure. He does not remain steadfast. He attempts to be friends with both God and the world, and thus he loses God and he falls victim to the ways of the world. He's like the captain of our text. The captain loved receiving blessings of Yahweh. He loved being faithful to Yahweh until Yahweh required something of him. 
until hardship came upon him, so he doubted God's word when he received it, and thus he did not enjoy in God's blessing. James, in his first chapter, he goes on from here to remind us of why we must not be double-minded, why we must seek wisdom, especially in the midst of afflictions, because the faithful one, unlike the captain, the faithful one that endures, he is blessed. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast in a trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Waiting for God sometimes means you have to wait through some horrible, horrific situations because we live in a fallen world a cursed world that's under judgment that's under the wrath of god and sometimes waiting for god means you wait until you give your last breath and you see him face to face but if you wait faithfully you will receive the crown of life don't be like esau and trade in your inheritance for a bowl of soup that only satisfies for a moment And you're able to remain steadfast in the trials of life amidst the afflictions because of who your intercessor is, right? It's not because of you. It's not because of your own strength. It's not because of your own aspiration or ambition. And praise God, it's not because of you. You're not that great. You're not that capable. Because you left your own. You're fallen. You're sinful. You're imperfect. So you need someone who is not. You need someone who is better. And so it's because we have such a great high priest and it's because we can go to him in our time of need that we are able to do so. So here are the words of our uh, passage that was our call to worship this morning, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And again, this is a cornerstone passage. This is one that I've come back to multiple times in my sermons. This is a great verse. If you are struggling your sins, you struggle in anything, going to God, this is a good passage to again to chew on, to meditate on these deep Troops. And when we preach through Hebrews, I'm, I'm looking forward to it because it's just so rich of just this truths of Scripture and, and doctrine. Anyway, let me read it. Since then, we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence... Not with doubt, but with confidence, with faithfulness. Draw near to the throne of grace. In other words, let us cry out, Alas, Jesus, alas, Father, help, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As such, we must learn to wait on God in faithful expectation. We go to him, we give him a prayer, we need to wait patiently for his answer. Here are the final verses of Isaiah 40. Now, I would commend the whole chapter to you. I'm just going to read the last uh, four verses. But this chapter is, is written down by Isaiah, God's prophet, God speaking to Isaiah, to his people. And, and his people at this time in the history of Isaiah are the same people of First and Second Kings. Now, not, not in our text, but when First and Second Kings was compiled and written and given to the people of Israel, they were in exile. Isaiah 40 is given to the people in exile originally. So they're under the discipline of God. They are experiencing the exile that God put them in. And this is how Isaiah 40 ends in verses 28 through 31. Because the people are wondering, how long, how much longer? Is God really real? The temple is destroyed. What's going on? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And I know some of you who have kids, you know, kids have a lot of energy, right? I mean, almost so, you wonder, does it ever end? And occasionally they crash, right? But even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall and exhausted. But God, he does not grow weary. That means It's not like he has a limited amount of power, and depending on your prayer, depending on your priority, depending on your need, he's like, well, I I hear that prayer, but let me consider this other prayer here. This might need more of my power. No, he's going to give it generously, and he's not going to grow tired from it. So you can keep going back to the well of living water because it's unending. So you go back to him over and over again, even if it's the same thing, the same problem. Go to him over and over again. Verse 31, but they who wait forth Yahweh shall renew their strength. 
They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And why? Because it's God who's giving you the power. It's his spirit that does not grow tired that does it. There will be days when you're tired, you're exhausted. And like, I just don't know if I can be faithful today. Well, don't lean on yourself. Lean on the Spirit. Go to Christ. He is all you have. Go to Him. Let Him empower you with His Spirit. Be filled by the Spirit. And live faithfully. Wait for Him to deliver you from your affliction. Whatever it may be. Maybe it's a temptation. Maybe it's a hardship in life. But be patient. Wait for Him. And He will renew your strength. And if it comes, maybe it's a moment where you doubt your faith and you're thinking, boy, I've given up so much. I've lost family over this faith. I've lost jobs. I've, I've moved. I've, I've given so much to the church. And, and yet I, I feel empty. I, I feel like something's lacking or, or I'm depressed or I still have all this anxiety in my life. Is it worth it? Or am I really saved? And that's when you must hold fast to your confession. Consider your day of baptism. Consider when the church has affirmed you as a believer. Consider the days that you've taken communion that reaffirms your faith in Christ. And remember, your faith in Christ is salvation is not rooted in how strong your faith is or how sincere it is, but on the work of Jesus Christ, on the work of our great high priest. This waiting for God is not a passive thing right? We've talked about this already. This waiting for God, this is not a simply letting go, letting God. This is a going to him, right? When we wait for God, we go to him. We approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence because of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. But you can't approach the throne unless he is your high priest. If Jesus is not your high priest, none of this matters. There is no hope for you. There isn't. All, the only thing I have for you, if you do not believe, if you reject Jesus Christ, all I have is bad news. Damnation awaits for you because you're already under the wrath of sin, excuse me, under the wrath of God because of your sin. And Jesus is the only way out. So make him your high priest. Put your trust. Look to him for deliverance. Lay your life down. Pick up his cross and follow him. Some of you, you have been living like the king's captain. You've been living among the people of God, but you lack faith. You doubt the things of Scripture. You'll enjoy the blessings of God's providence when things are going well, but when they are not, you look elsewhere, or you will look elsewhere when it does turn. So don't do that. Let the king's captain here be a warning to you. Lest he returns, you see him return, but you don't partake of his table. You don't partake of his glory. Don't try to understand God first. Right? Some of us, especially Americans, we want to understand something before we become part of it, but that's not how this works. It's not how any of this works. It requires faith. The only thing that you need to know is the tomb is empty. Deal with the resurrection. Oh, where's this body? It's empty. Okay, well, I believe. And then allow the understanding. Whatever understanding God grants you, allow that to flow from your faith. Hear the words of Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 9, and then we will pray, and then we will enter into communion. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Seek Christ before it's too late. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let the unrighteous man put down his understanding. Let the great philosopher, the great intellectual, lay down their reasoning, their desires. Let him return to Yahweh. In other words, let them repent. This is what the king should have done. Like Nineveh did when they heard the preaching of God's word by Jonah. They repented and God had compassion on him. That he may have compassion on him and to our God, that he, for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is like his response to Job. Job, all the suffering that he incurred. How did God answer him? Who are you to try to understand why any of this is going on? You're, you're, you're a pawn. You're just part of this cosmic battle that's going on. You're, part of the, you're a detail, a, a paint stroke, and this massive picture that I am painting. Who are you to question my ways? 
That's a humbling thing. And I get it, especially when we want to have the answers. We can't always have the answers. But he's a holy, he's a sovereign God who's good and gracious. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for your word this morning, for these um, examples given to us. The two men who were faithful and how they handled uh, their situations. Thank you for the warnings of, of the life of King uh, Jerome and his, his captain who, who had such a, met an ill fate, Father, um, for his lack of faith. Help us to ponder, one, your holiness, uh, the, the depths of it, the, the fastness of it, uh, which involves your sovereignty that all things that happen, the, the wildfires, the rains, the wars, the peace, uh, the, 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 the blessings, the sufferings, all that happens under your sovereign will. And we don't understand it. We don't always like it. Uh, but help us to be humble before you. Help us to not be prideful. Help us to have a healthy, righteous, reverent perspective of who we are in light of you. And help us to turn to you in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our afflictions. Help us to wait for you patiently. Help us to endure the hardships that come before us, regardless of how or why they are brought upon us. Help us to keep our eyes on eternity. Help us to uh, be uh, not alone in this. Help us to look out for our brothers and sisters in Christ. May we keep them in our prayers. May we walk alongside of them. Help us to not neglect this gift that you've given us, the, the, the church. Help us not to, to neglect the spirit that is within us. Help us to uh, be grateful in all things, recognizing the glory that awaits us. Father, we ask that you would help us with our anxieties, with our despairs, uh, our moments, our seasons uh, of depression, um, that you would meet us there when we can't get a handle on our own emotions, our own thoughts, that you would, that you would take them captive, that you would help us to come back to the promises of Scripture, that we would chew, meditate, recall uh, the promises, the words of your word, um, and that we would be able to taste of the goodness uh, of your grace, of your mercy, um, and of, of just who you are. Father, be with those who, who are dealing with afflictions now that are, are perhaps uh, related to uh, provisional or material issues, people who are looking for jobs, people who have uh, specific needs, uh, homes, uh, whatever it may be, be with them. Grant them wisdom so that they can uh, wait for you wait for your answer, give them what they need, help us as a church to provide for those in need, help us to be uh, gracious towards one another, help us to um, be humble enough to let our needs to be known as well, Father. Recognizing that, yes, you are sovereign, but just as you use the angels to bless your people, you also use the saints to bless one another. And we thank you for that, Father. As we look towards eternity, as we look to walk in holiness, we ask that you would bless the table this morning, that you would bless the bread and the cup as we come to it, that we would recall what they represent, what they point us to, the work of your son, Jesus Christ, that we are forgiven by his shed blood on the cross. So help us to hear the Spirit this morning as the Spirit convict us of our sins, help us to confess our sins, and help us with confidence come to the table, just as we are able to come to the throne of grace by the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to do so here this morning as we partake of the bread and cup. May they be gifts of encouragement to us, gifts of grace, and may we be refreshed. May they give us energy and strength as we continue to wait for you and we wait for your son to return. Father, we ask all these things for your glory. By the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So at this time, we'll enter into... Um, communion. Uh, Reuben will be at one table. I will be at the other table. Uh, take a moment to uh, pray.